but I think it is that thing that we do touch something that is more than us mm. and and I don't really know what that is and I don't know how. Is it our subconscious? Is it some shared consciousness? I don't know. But we create these things which have a life of their own outside of us and that is a magic and people want to connect with someone who can actually connect them to that magic, not just through the book but through yourself, I think, as well. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Today we have a special episode with a guest host, and that guest host is Ray Cairns, who you will have heard before as both a guest host on the podcast and as a guest. Ray is going to be talking to fellow debut crime fiction author Nina D. Campbell, and it's a great chat with lots of really good stuff in there for both writers and readers. Ray Cairns needs pretty much no introduction because she has been on Rights for Women a couple of times now, both as a guest last year when she self-published her debut novel, The Good Mother, that was subsequently picked up by HarperCollins and has now been republished, has a fabulous new gorgeous cover and is actually going gangbusters out there. So many people are loving The Good Mother by Ray Cairns. Ray is a good friend of mine. She's in my writing group, The Inkwell. And when I was talking to her and saying, I've got all these fantastic authors I want to interview, I just haven't got the time to read the books. And she had already read Nina D. Campbell's book, Daughters of Eve. So she said, I'd be happy to talk to Nina. So I jumped at that chance. And as much as I'm a little bit jealous because Nina just looks and sounds like a fabulous person and a great writer, and this book is definitely going to make its way into my pile because it sounds so wonderful. So Nina D. Campbell studied theatre and literature at university, and then she stumbled into the world of work in the midst of the recession that we had to have. She, Nina co- cobbled together a respectable career as a professional writer working across the community and public sectors before a midlife health challenge changed her priorities. Nina now writes fiction full-time with a focus on stories about strong women, perfect guests for rights for women, of course. Together with her partner and their spirited Jack Russell Terrier, she lives in South Australia, close to world-class wine regions, sparkling beaches and other tempting delights. And I've had the pleasure of editing this interview between Ray and Nina a really great chat. As I said, both readers and writers are going to enjoy this. So grab a cuppa, sit back and join Ray Cairns and Nina D. Campbell on the Convo Couch as they talk about Nina's new book, Daughters of Eve. Hi, and welcome to this special episode of Rights for Women. My name is Ray Cairns, and it's my absolute pleasure to be speaking with debut crime author Nina D. Campbell about her sensational and thought-provoking thriller, Daughters of Eve. Nina, welcome to the Convo Couch. Oh, hi. Thanks, Ray. It's so great to be able to talk to you as well, because your book is also one of those debuts that has really kicked ass. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Your book, like mine, was released in March. 
How's it been having it in readers' hands? How have the last three months been? Oh, it's been a whirlwind. It's just been absolutely crazy. And I'm sure you feel the same way that that sense of when you've spent as many years as we've spent writing away quietly in our little caves to suddenly come out into the glaring light of day is quite a big transition. And getting used to getting used to it is taking a bit of a while. But I think the thing that's most amazing is lying in bed at night after I put my book aside thinking, oh my God, there are people in the world right now holding my book up in bed and reading. And that sense of connection with readers, I think is intoxicating in a way you just can't explain. Yeah, that's such so a good point. I've never, I haven't thought about that. Now that's what I'll be doing tonight. Thinking <laughs> <laughs> about that, but you're right about the connection to readers. It's quite, it's a really yeah. special thing. Or if you get a message from a reader or something, isn't it? <gasps> My God, yes, yeah. And I had the weirdest thing happen the other day. I was buying dog food for Molly, and they were talking about what a sweet little dog she was. And I was saying, oh yeah, she's a very special dog. She's a she's an author dog, so she actually helps me write books. And these were very young kids, young people. I was thinking, yeah, they're not really. And they asked about the book and one of them was a huge crime aficionado. And so I gave them my card and said, oh, look, come and look at me, look me up on, online. And the other one leaned over and went, oh, my friend's a fan of yours. And I went, oh my God, I've got fans. Oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, it just bends your brain in these really unexpected ways when you go, oh my God, yeah, this thing that I wrote is actually touching other people and connecting with them in a way that... I always wanted to, but you never think that you actually will. You always think that you're just crafting this story almost for yourself and your friends. Yeah, but that's the hope though, isn't it? That it'll take it on an, an, another level with people. Yes. Yeah. I read Daughters of Eve about two weeks ago and I have to say it, it really is one of my favourite reads of this year. It wow. It is clever and nuanced, fast-paced, twisty with a brilliant, strong female lead but for listeners at home who haven't had a chance to read it tell us a bit about daughters of eve okay it's a fast-paced police procedural because that's one of my favorite genres i like fast moving it's got a high body count but unlike a lot of a crime where the body count is predominantly female in this one the body count is actually exclusively male and that's really the heart of the story it's the story of a female detective who has is quite troubled by the amount of violence against women in her experience as a homicide detective who comes across a series of crimes that she thinks are going to actually make her career they're high profile killings all with the same mo it's going to be big on the press and she's thinking oh my god you might actually get a career out of this but then she finds out that they are actually targeting men who have perpetrated crimes against women and gone unpunished and so there's the heart of the dilemma for her, that first stage dilemma. And the story unfolds from there as like initially the boys in the squad room are uncomfortable with the idea that it would be about domestic violence because that's just crazy. Women don't do those kinds of things. But when it actually comes out and the Daughters of Eve basically announce their arrival with a, a manifesto online, all of a sudden the book pivots and we start looking at what would happen in our culture if women actually were perpetrating crimes instead of more predominantly being the victims of violent crimes. Oh, I love I loved that juxtaposition between what would happen, what does happen, crimes against women, and then that, that 
the, yeah, the juxtaposition yeah. of the, having the crimes against men and the totally different reaction that you played with both in politics and policing and in the public discourse. It's just, it's really clever and it, it really hit home as being, oh, I could see this happening. That's the terrifying thing, isn't it? I remember when I first wrote it, so I wrote it in 2017. In a sense, it was my way of processing that Me Too movement, wanting to understand why when I was reading my social media feeds were full of my friends disclosing terrible, awful things that had happened to them. And then thinking, how does this just, how does this just happen? And we get up and we keep moving and we keep, we just keep living our lives and doing amazing things. If this was happening to men, it would be a completely different story. If, if men were being killed by women and that sort of narrative flip, I think is often at the heart of really good stories where you, yeah, have a look at it from a completely different angle. But that was the story spark for you, that, that questioning the. Yeah. What would happen if women actually were doing to men what men are doing to women in our culture? And, and it, anytime it's a really astoundingly evil crime it makes the press the average weekly killing of a woman by her intimate partner or ex-intimate partner more often that just runs under the radar and if there wasn't actually a, a group of journalists committed to uncovering it then we probably wouldn't know that 50 women plus a year die at the hands of their intimate partners so i think it is a really a mind-bending statistic that we kind of hop over with Relative ease. Yeah. So I think it's about that notion of the value of a human life and whether they are equally valued if they're male or female and how we as a culture respond to the way that violence, which is usually a male purview, is, yeah, what happens if it flips around. And we're watching it at the moment and people are trolling Amber Heard in huge numbers, which is just heartbreaking and you think is she the instigator of this violence given that there seems to be a long list of people saying that this violence existed in Johnny Depp for a long time and or is she just rising to meet that I think if you've read Jess Hill's seminal work that amazing book yes. look what you made me do it really unpacks that notion of the different ways in which women respond to domestic violence yeah it was really interesting to dig down into that and mess with the stereotypes and yeah, flip them around a little bit. Yeah, and the societal expectations of mm. what they'll accept and what's just a given, and all of us. Yeah, it's so well done. Thank you. It's just very clever, and it did. And I think we've all had that thought at some. Maybe I'm. I've certainly had the thought at some <laughs> time of what would happen if this was happening to men. Mm. Taking that and run with it. So you had that kind of moment in 2017 where you wanted to process. And it was a lot. It was a lot to process. Mm. It was a, and it was brilliant that it was all coming to the fore. But, yeah, like you said, I was getting things across my social media about my friends and things that had happened to them as well. So you had this idea pre-2017, what you wrote professionally. Is that mm. correct? Um, yeah, so I'm sort of, you were, okay. No, I did. I wrote, I wrote in my spare time, I wrote fiction. So I had since about 2010, I think that was when I wrote my first attempt at a long form novel. Before that, I'd written a lot of short stories and in my teens, bad poetry. And I'd always played with words. I've loved words since I was a child. Sitting on my mum's lap, I learned to read. She used to read adult novels to me and just run her fingers under the words. And yeah, so I've loved story and words for all that time. And 
so I was drawn into jobs that involved communication, that involved speaking or writing. And I ended up in government writing speeches for ministers and speeches for high-level bureaucrats and briefing papers and various different sort of communication tools. But it was, yeah, around 2010, I had a, an issue where I, a health issue, which meant that I couldn't type. For almost a year, I had very limited capacity to type. And it really made me realise that words that were so precious to me were limited. Like the number of words that I would write in my life before I died were, we all have those kind of moments where we go, oh, crikey, this is a, this is an actual game with an end to it. And so I, yeah, that was when I decided I would start writing novels. I thought that's what I really want to do. And it was, in fact, my mum's dream before it was mine, but she was a mum and working. So she never actually got to fulfill that dream. So one of the special things about Daughters of Eve for me is that a lot of the character of Amelia, the detective, a lot of it is drawn from my mum. So that was one it's of kind of questions. Like, okay. Yeah. It's a long full love letter to my mum who died when I was 30. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure she would have written absolutely amazing novels in her retirement years. So she passed her love of reading and writing and words and creativity to you. Oh, that's she did. Beautiful. That's gorgeous. Yeah, it was pretty special. And it was something I didn't really realise until I, I wrote the book in 2017. And in 2022, when it was published, I suddenly had this overwhelming sort of emotional response to the book. When it was out in the world, I had this feeling like, oh, I don't know that it's safe for it to be out in the world in other people's hands. Why am I, why am I so emotional about that? And then I went, oh, because it's my mum. And yeah, and that sort of whole personal angle kind of opened up for me. And I went, wow, that's really exciting. So when you started writing the character, did you go into it knowing, like, because Amelia is very determined, she's engaged, mm. she's very ambitious and flawed, beautifully flawed. Is she, did you know going into it that, that you were drawing on your mum or for the character or did you no, realise that after the fact? Yeah, I realised that, as I said, when it was published. I had no idea. It was that far. It was, yeah, it was an amazing. I was actually in the middle of an interview with Crime Club, QBD Crime Club, and, and it suddenly struck me and I went, oh, my gosh. And I had that revelation and it's actually on film, me having that revelation, which is kind of trippy as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was really strange. But the character actually, I'm quite an intuitive writer, so the character actually just jumped fully formed into my head and started speaking to me. And she had such a fabulous way with words. So I don't know how I missed it. It was my mum. Because <laughs> mum was always very good at, yeah, at really getting to the heart of issues. Yeah. And she definitely brooked no falls. She was, she was a very gutsy woman. She came from a tough part of England called Leicester in the Midlands, where women have been working since the Industrial Revolution. So they make their women tough there. And she was definitely not somebody who would be cowed easily. No, I really liked that about Amelia, that she just kept on going. And she had that really, she's got other stuff going on. She's very complex, like things are going on at home that she's perhaps not as confident and about in herself. But at work, she's just, she goes with what she really believes in and follows yes. through. And, and, and I like that she was ambitious too. Yes. Don't yeah. necessarily see a lot of, and I'm not talking about that really aggressive, trying to be a man ambition. I'm just genuinely ambitious in her career. It was lovely to have a character like that. Yeah, um, who was comfortable claiming it and who was also comfortable recognising that it was a challenge to, yeah. in the particular blokey space that she was in, 
to find that career footing and to find that advancement. Yeah, because yeah. it's really interesting. She's given a lot of the domestic violence cases because none of the boys want them because they're not career makers. Exactly. And along comes this incredible case connected to domestic violence and women issues around violence against women. And all of a sudden, all the men want it. And mm. it really, it's interesting seeing that. Uh, she was the natural choice for it because that was her expertise and yeah, it was really. And Robbo knew, Robbo who's a hero as well, yes. he knew that she was necessary to the case. He knew that she had that kind of intrinsic knowledge and would lean into her a lot for tell me how to do this, how to do that. So I really enjoyed that, again, flipping that gender narrative so that her expertise was recognised by one person, even though it was being dismissed by a large number of people. But even um, had to have that moment of mm. almost acquiescing to her expertise and accepting that he needed her. Like, even though that mm. was, and even though he is that character that does develop into a hero, I liked that. I liked that it wasn't just easy for him either. No, and that's, I think that's one of the things that's really at the heart of writing for me is I really love those grey spaces. I really love the places where people are challenged, where they have to learn to question things which they have innately believed to be true. So those kind of uh, moral ambiguity areas are mm. really fascinating to me and characters being asked to really check what they thought they knew was true. Yeah, yeah, I, it's, it's so well done because I think that's what I liked, that each of the characters were well-rounded and nuanced and most of them struggling with their own prejudices and issues and ambition and all of that. I really liked you, that you included that subplot of romance as well. Mm. What was your thought process behind that? What was that drove that? I was going to say, it's really hard, isn't it? Because as an intuitive writer, I remember when Matt turned up just going, who are you and why are you here? He just had no idea. He was, and he came and then went quite quickly in the first case. And then he turned up again later. And I, was, I just, yeah, the, it was a really interesting process for me going through it, thinking, I'm telling this story. What are you doing here? But then looking back on it, once I actually, once the book was finished, I realized that he is integral to Amelia's internal arc. So her external arc is around her ambition and solving the crime and all of that sort of external gratification. But her internal arc is learning to take this, this righteous anger that she feels about um, and feels very deeply about what happens to women in their lives, about the lack of justice that they receive, about the, and that she's trying to to write that balance and how she comes to actually learn to love in that space. So somebody came back to me at an author talk the other day and said, I really loved that you captured the dilemma that women often feel, strong women feel about relationships, about how you actually be genuinely connected in a loving partnership with somebody in a world which really stacks the cards so that they should have more say in that relationship than you. And I think a lot of strong women, we find and gravitate to these very special men who don't feel the need to dominate us and don't feel the need to to be the lord and master of their mm. realm and they're hard to find and sometimes I know when I was young learning to trust that was also hard so I think that's part of Amelia's internal journey is coming to a place where she feels strong and safe in her own her own ability to love and be loved and I'm not sure that we had a lot of examples of them 
in literature of those men. No, the Darcy's were not kind of growing up thinking about what we were given as the ideal man picture. It wasn't these men that are happy to stand at your side and do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So I really enjoyed seeing him on the page and, and her struggle with do I trust, can I trust, is this worth it? All of that stuff. And he's not always perfect. Like he makes mistakes as well. Which is brilliant. Yep. There is that, that, because that's the thing. Sex and relationships are messy. They're not perfect. No one's ever perfect. Mm -hmm. We have, we rub up against each other in positive and negative ways. So that was really important to me. But you're right. I think I was actually thinking the other day about that trajectory of, of women writing crime. And so we, we go back apart from Miss Marple in the Agatha Christie realm, a lot of female crime writers had to write male protagonists mm -hmm. and we've really only so authors like you and I and Mercedes Mercia who are really pushing into that space of saying no we want and Sarah Bailey Sarah Barry there's, there's Candace Fox there are a lot of them now but we're it's really this last 10 sort of years that we've really started to come out and start talking in our own voice and putting those strong female lead characters into crime fiction. So I think there's a real change happening in the way that we perceive both men and women in the world. And I think it's really powerful, as you say, to have male characters who actually value love and who actually value and respect their partners. I, I heard a really brilliant um, dissertation on why men sometimes struggle with the notion of consent. And it was just a list of all of the characters played by Harrison Ford, one actor. So he said, just one actor, go back and look at all of the characters that Harrison Ford has played. And, and he cited a particular scene in each one where a woman said no, and Harrison Ford's character said yes. And the woman went, oh, I'm all gooey and lovey now. And oh, I just needed you to push me over that brink. So that dynamic in relationships was so prevalent that I had never made that connection that until that person actually voiced it. And I went, yeah, how do we expect our men to understand or our boys to grow into the men who understand how to be in an actual equal partnership when we fill their heads with all of these media images and books and stories of men who are tough and men who are strong and who find that strength in a very masculine way and, and don't have to coerce the woman mm. sex. And so it's really interesting. I think that whole issue is started off being dealt with in romance Absolutely. and um, the issue of consent and it's a big thing now that, that you have to get consent on the page I think because I've got a couple of friends mm. romance writers and I think that's a really healthy place to be because if you're now media if you're now yeah whatever it is we're doing movies tv reading if we're constantly putting that out there that this is something required then hopefully mm. we can change the narrative around it. Absolutely. I think it's really true. I think there's a, it's a multi-pronged kind of attack that we have to make on our culture at the moment. And it's really happening all across the board. So since we had Saxon Mullins stand up, we had Grace Tame stand up, we had Britney Spears stand up, those women have really fundamentally changed the narrative that we have around the notion of consent and around the notion of male and female sexuality, that whole predator and prey notion. Mm. They've really stood up and said, hey, that's what that is. And it's really not okay. And then we've got Jess Hill putting this really strong intellectual rigor behind it and, a, and drawing on, I think, a host of amazing gender studies and criminology practitioners who are looking into that world quite closely. 
So we're having this sort of legislative change that we saw in New South Wales recently where they clarified the laws around consent. We're having conversations in the media through the advertising campaign Respect that's just rolled out, I think it's third or fourth iteration, which has been really powerful and very well received. And we're also having it in the arts. And I think that's really, to me, that's where a lot of our stories and our sense of who we are is forged is in the art that's in the movies it's in the tv series it's in the books and i think we're we're having this sort of time of reckoning and reclaiming and change and that those times can be messy but i think they're really they can be really empowering yeah yeah couldn't agree more yeah and i agree that romance writers get a really bad rap a lot of the time as being part of the problem but in fact they are the litmus test I think, like I think, romance literature reflects our notion of romance, and as and reflects our notion of love. And I think it has. I've watched it transform since Me Too. Since I, were you at the conference where Beth Cuthbert talked about Kate Cuthbert? That's right. She's like a bit of a hero of mine because she got up and gave that amazing speech about how it was our role as writers to step up and change that narrative in a really marked way on the page. And I think we've witnessed such a transformation in romance fiction as a response to that. It's really powerful. I, I think the issue of consent has actually been being dealt with before pre-Me Too. Like mm. entire time I've been writing, because I've been in a writing group and I've got a couple of romance writers in that group, Laura Boone and Penelope Pijanu, and they both, like that, those issues have been mm. by the, and so I started, that was 2015, and it was happening before that. So I just think it's really interesting that yeah, we see this romance as this uh, fluffy genre, but it's actually at the forefront of a lot of this. And back in the 1980s, I did a Mills and Boone writing course way, way back when. And I remember, I remember them talking at that stage, they were talking about the importance of finding ways to include condoms yes. in books because you had like AIDS was this huge thing that was transforming the way that we had sex. And they were just like, it's not okay. You have to find a way. To represent this notion of sex being a, um, because if we normalize mm. it, which happens yep. through, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about, isn't it? It is, isn't it? And so now I think we'll move on to the research side of writing for you. So it's a police procedural. I'm mm. highly impressed that you dove into a police procedural. <laughs> Where did your knowledge of the, how things work in the police? come from? A lot of it, I have to say, is I'm just going to go the poetic license road. There's a lot of it is made up. And particularly interesting was that the the editor, when I first submitted my first draft, it was about 70,000 words. And the second draft was 115,000 words because she came back and said, there's a lot of this happens off the page. So can you put a lot more of it on the page? So I then had to race around and do a lot of sort of research. So I'd done a bit of research into the order of the, how the parents work yeah. hierarchically, but the notion of like how an investigation takes place draws probably far more heavily on the police procedurals I have both read and watched than does on any kind of real innate knowledge. But the interactions, I think, draw a lot on my time in the public service, which is again, a very hierarchical organisation with interesting kind of dynamics around orders and there are lots of policies and procedures that have to be followed and how people move between those to actually follow their own sort of political power. Those dynamics I've watched in the office for a long time. So 
in lots of ways, that was a lot of the body of what I was working with. But yeah, otherwise, it's all very much thanks to Dirtle McTurnan and... Well, that's not a bad source to have. <laughs> no, she's pretty darn spot on and uh, yeah, and absolutely riveting. If you're going to go somewhere that keeps you glued to the page. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you live in South Australia. Yep. I do now, but I actually wrote the book in Queanbeyan. Okay, so in Queanbeyan. So why did you decide to set it in Sydney then? I think I, I knew intuitively that, that it was going to get that it was going to go the way that it did, that it was going to grow into a political, because I did really want to get to the heart of how we respond to various different crimes. And I've always found, so really between Sydney and Melbourne were the two that I was tussling with. And I think that there is a, a slightly more laid back vibe in Melbourne. And what I needed was that kind of more likely to erupt sense that I got sometimes in in Sydney. It's people in Sydney walk with real purpose and they move like it's a very ambitious, strong kind of town. And I think that also played into it as well. But I just thought if things were going to spill out into a sort of violent eruptions, it would probably be Sydney. But it was a, a close run thing to some degree because there is also a series of killings in Melbourne. Yes. And yes. yeah, I did, but I said it specifically in Sydney and also just, I guess, on a pure business sense, Sydney's a more recognisable city in Australia and if it's ever going to sell overseas, probably Sydney would be the better place to set it. So, yeah. So there are a number of different things that... Yeah, that kind of proposition. But interestingly, these things aren't often decisions for me. It's, I have to retroactively work out why I did things. Absolutely. Because the story, you dive into it and it just takes you and you discover where you are and you discover who you are. And I also, I do love those. I lived in Sydney for three months back in the 1980s. Oops. And, <laughs> and I remember it as being this really diverse city. So it has like real, and I'm much more familiar with things like Point Piper and, and Marrickville and yeah. the North Shore and all those sort of things. So I have a very slight knowing knowledge of those places. I thank God for Google Maps, which was the yeah. way that I put all the settings together. Like I would just go and drop myself into streets and look around and turn around and go, okay, that kind of, and I'd go to sort of several streets in one particular pub. Down the road. <laughs> yep. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I like that house. So I chose houses. One of the houses, the actual Marrickville house that, that Amelia lives in with the girls is actually based on a house that a friend of a friend sent me photos of and I just fell in love with it. Like it was such a beautiful little cottage. And so that's always in the back of my head as much as anything's in my head. When I <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on to the writing side of things. You've said that you've, since 2010, you've written novels yeah. and fiction and stuff. So was it just a process of this was the novel that got to the point that you were ready to if you felt like your, your writing had evolved enough and you were ready to pitch it and all of that, or was it a decision, I'm going to commit full-time to writing fiction? I wrote three sort of full novels and I pitched two of them. Actually, yeah, I pitched two of them at Romance Writers of Australia conferences. They were commercial women's fiction novels. And I got through that process, I got better and better feedback as they advanced and as I learned my craft and internalised my craft. This book was different in that it just came like a gust of wind through me. So I described it once as it felt like I cut a vein and just bled all over the page. It was written in seven weeks 
and seven weeks. Yep. And the weirdest thing is that was the first draft, which I took to a conference and pitched. And yeah, and I accidentally, like, although I worked on that and changed it and all that sort of polished it, I accidentally submitted my first draft. So it was actually signed on the first draft that it took seven weeks to write. Wow. And that was, sorry, that was with Alan and Unwit, the Yes. Yeah. Yep. Jane Palferman. Is that right? It's Jane Palferman. Yeah. That, yep, it is. Yeah. It was amazing. And the other weird twist. No, go ahead. Sorry. The other weird twist is that I pitched it to Hayley Nash and it from Alan and Unwin at that first conference. And Annette said, it's not really my thing. It's a bit dark, but I have a colleague who I think might be interested in it. And I now think that was probably Jane. So I might have been signed in 2017 if I had actually followed up on that. But because Hayley expressed interest, I was thinking, oh, no, I'll see if I can get an agent first. And, and then, yeah, Hayley withdrew from agenting. So it was, it was a really interesting road that took five years for it to come back to that very initial place. And I think in lots of ways that time was really necessary for me to become the person who could actually stand up with that book. So the book could stand up in 2017, but I needed to be able to stand with it. And I had to go through a lot of processes, I think, of learning to deal with rejection and in a more direct way and learning to talk about it because it is such a, a difficult topic matter for a lot of people. This is um, a, and even an though, interesting point because I think when you sit down and you go, I'm going to write a book and you pour it out and you have whatever, whatever journey you get to, to actually publishing, nobody really talks on that next step. We, no. You and I have both experienced the last three months of have, having to be prepared to share yourself within the promotion of the book and mm-hmm. talking about the creation of the book. And it's all very quite, it's quite personal. Like even you say, I realised that she was based on my mother because a lot of writing is intuitive and don't necessarily know until people start asking you questions that how personal parts of it are. It's such an interesting point that you say you kind of probably needed that five years to develop. Yeah, the book. I think I developed the writing in the first five years, and then I developed the yeah the ability to actually author. And that's it. I really author. It's good experience. It's that kind of that journey, and I still feel it very much. We talked when we first got on about the fact that it's actually quite early in the morning here, and Mm. I'm fully made up, and I'm wearing my my jacket, which is my sort of signature jacket that makes me feel like an author. Because I'm still in the process of growing into that author being that people want to connect with. I still feel like the person who finished work got home and started writing because I couldn't I couldn't stop because the story was running around in my head and I needed to get it out onto the page. And there is the really big difference, I think, between the writer that you are and then becoming an author. And I think it's quite exhausting. You don't realise how tiring it is until you actually have to do it, make that transition on a sort of daily basis. Yeah. So it is, yeah, it's a privilege and one that I would never surrender and I'm so thankful for it. Mm. But it is a process that you go through learning to be the person that people need you to be, to stand beside your book and give it the gravitas that it deserves. Absolutely. It's not just a matter of handing over that final draft, that proof of the book. You've then got this whole other learning journey of, yeah, like you said, authoring. It's such a, a it's something I wish we talked about a bit more to pre- help prepare 
debut authors for it's quite thank goodness for the incredibly generous author community who say to you make sure you've got light your lights okay when you're on it and, uh, and if you're wearing glasses make sure it's high enough that it doesn't do that either it, 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 just little tips but it, it sounds so small but with each time you learn and grow and you're right you grow into the role of being an author and, and kind of being able to stand next to your book yeah and I think about the authors that that I that I really like I still fangirl quite mad of authors, some of whom are now friends, but it is that sense of you touch magic, I think, when you write. And we don't necessarily understand what it is that we do, but there is something about building a world that has the strong enough foundations, walls and roof that it actually holds together and is a book that when you look at someone, so for example, Jacqueline Bublitz, one of my favourite writers, and I, that first book, when it came out, I just, I was in tears. And I remember saying to Bruce, I just can't believe that my book had been signed at that point. And I was like, I can't believe that. No, I just <laughs> stand up next to that. There's just no way. That is just the most amazing book I've ever read. And I just, I can't stand next to that. So we have those kind of internal journeys. And then, then you connect with her and find out that she's actually just, just like us, <laughs> just a normal person. She's not a bad lord. <laughs> no, that's right. But I think it is that thing that we do touch something that is more than us. Mm. And and I don't really know what that is. And I don't know how. Is it our subconscious? Is it some shared consciousness? I don't know. But we create these things which have a life of their own outside of us. And that is a magic. And people want to connect with someone who can actually connect them to that magic, not just through the book, but through yourself, I think, as well. That's a good way of putting it. Absolutely. Okay. So, so back to your journey to publication. So you... It took seven weeks to write the first draft. Then you moved into, so then you were signed. Is, is that, does that, no, then, then I was editing and then I was, I struggled a lot because I had written two commercial women's fiction novels and one crime novel. Well, I mean, I, I, how come you moved into crime? Is it just the subject matter? Like it, it took you there or was it a decision? It was, it was a subject matter, but it was also something I've always loved and wanted to do. And I think I... I don't, I listened to Mercedes talking about it the other day when she was saying, I didn't think that I would be able to do that. I didn't think I had the skill level to do that. And I think that's what it was. I think you hold so many things in your head when you write crime. There are so many different strands Mm -hmm. and all of that sort of laying of breadcrumb trails and putting of red herrings and things like that. And I couldn't see how I could do that as an intuitive writer. So when I jumped in, it was very much a, I'm just going to give this a shot and see what happens. And it all came together because I think when you just shove all of that technique and, and craft into the back of your head, the back of your head then becomes able to serve up something that is more palatable <laughs> at the front end <laughs> when it sort of spills out onto the page. And I think, yeah, I was very much as surprised as everybody, I think, that I had made that jump to crime and that I had done it so succinctly. But I don't think I could have done it if I hadn't written the two previous novels as well. But I was really struggling with got two novels here that I could self-publish yep. and because everyone I gave them to enjoyed them and I was thinking, oh, maybe I should do that. So I was struggling for a while with whether I was a crime writer or a commercial women's fiction writer and, uh, and trying to bridge those gaps. And I think also just preparing to be able to think about who I was as a writer and what I wanted to say in the world. Yeah, so it actually took till... I was signed in 2021, yeah. Okay, so 2017 yeah. you wrote it and then you worked on it. 2021? Submitted. Yeah, submitted and signed. Okay, yeah. so let's look at that from the ups and downs of that journey. What would you say yeah. were the major ups and downs? 
of that journey? Oh, getting my agent. Yeah, being signed by an agent and then my agent actually had to step back from agenting for a while and so I was a little bit adrift there. And then she came back and she actually spoke to three of her previous stable and just said, I can't let your books go. They just won't let me go. So that was a bit of a roller coaster ride there. And then my sister became quite ill. And so she's not with us anymore. And that process of letting her go, but also supporting her in her final, in her final years also was quite prevalent in my experience. So I actually, we moved to South Australia in the, at the end of 2020 because she had received a terminal diagnosis and it was just like being almost crucified between the best and worst things that could happen in your life. I got signed, she was dying, and I was trying to write and edit this book while my sister was right on the cusp of the end of her life. So that was quite a... a Roller coaster of immense proportion. And when she passed, I think it was, there was a lot to process there about the fact that she was the last member of my family. So I stand without, like we migrated. So I have no, no strong family connections beyond a cousin in Canberra and a cousin in Alice Springs. There is that kind of, and my in law family who are like family to me too. So there is this sort of, huge internal processes going on about identity at the same time as I'm writing this book, which is really in a large part about identity. About identity. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. really twined. So even your sister is, is a part of this book. Part of that oh. story. Yeah. A story. Yeah. Wow. That's big highs and big lows all the same mm. time. So as far as uh, the writing part of it, what was the biggest learning curve in your journey from starting the book and when it was debuted in March. Wow. Okay. I realized that I don't actually make very many pictures in my head. That was probably the biggest learning curve for me. Okay. So how did you solve that? What did you do? I, that was where I think Google Maps was a huge part of it. Yeah. But also it's, I think it's indicative of the kind of books that I like to read as well. So I don't read things that have a lot of description in them. I read fairly fast paced books but that are immersed in emotion. I really like that sense of being inside a character and really living through that character's experience. And I think, yeah, so I think that was probably the biggest learning curve for me was one of the pieces of feedback I got was, could you put more setting in? I I like a breakneck pace, but could you locate us in time and space all the way through the novel? So that was actually something I did retrospectively as I went Mm -hmm. back through and wrote that 45,000 extra words that, that in the end got sewn into and I think gave so much more strength to the novel. And I think also the importance of editors, like the gift that is a really good editor, somebody who can stand outside of your book and look at it and come back and and say, this bit here, that didn't work, but these bits here, they really did work. And that allow you then to move through the novel with both that critical hat and that creative hat still on. I had edited things before, but the time pressure, the kind of pressure cooker of a deadline at the same time as quite a fundamental edit required, unpicked one entire storyline that didn't quite work and sewed in this much bigger storyline that ended up becoming probably the catalyst for the next novel. Yeah, so I think 
the ability to be far more robust in the way I manipulated that original story was the biggest learning curve. And it was really exciting to be able to be get on your hobnail boots and walk through a story and go, you're out. You're yeah. <laughs> Kill your darlings, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. As I'm interested, so with the setting side of things, because you, you're, I assume you're working on book two, which I'll ask about in a little bit, but. Are you finding you're applying the setting stuff more as you're writing or you'll just, you'll do that later? I am, I'm very early in book two, so I haven't actually made that sort of call straight away, but I think, I think I will be trying to actually put them into the first draft mm. because it will just be so much easier if I don't have to go back. And I know the streets a lot better now, so I'm a bit more familiar with what they look like. So even though I don't make actual pictures in my head the way that so one of my friends describes it as sitting in a chair and it's like a movie showing on the on the wall. But that's what I'm like. I'm like oh, that. Yeah, Pam and I do that is actually all the time because she is more like you. She doesn't yep. see the pictures in her head. So yeah, we, we kind of try to understand where each other's coming from with it. Yeah. Yes, it's fascinating. Isn't it? And I didn't realise until I heard the Sisters of Crime talk before the one that I did with Emma Visick. And she was quite, she was just like, you people are strange. What do you mean you can see things in your head? What is that? And I had, I had struggled with it because I studied drama when I was at uni. I studied theatre. And one of the things that you do is these guided meditations. And they say, oh, you're walking through a field and you're sitting down by a stream. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm lying here. <laughs> That's right. I'm lying on the floor and I have no idea how to do what you're doing. And couldn't work out whether people, but some people genuinely can just meander through. A, and I find that quite, yeah, quite fascinating. And so it's really heartening for me when people say that they can see the streets in Sydney that I'm describing. Yeah. People who are actually Sydney siders have been getting back to me and saying, Oh, you obviously know Sydney really well. And it's no, I don't. I think when you don't make pictures in your head, you become much more attuned to picking the very specific things that will make something stand out and come to life. That's really interesting. Yeah. 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 And it's words. That's the other thing. For me, I build the world out of words. Whereas I think if you build the world in pictures, you're describing something, but I'm actually building the word, the yeah. world straight out of those words in a a different relationship with them. It is. It's a fascinating notion. Yeah. Well, so you said before that you, you're an intuitive writer, so you just find the story. Did you, when you began, did you have any idea of the end ending or no, no. did you just sit down and out it came and you discovered it, it as you went along? Yeah, it was, there were a couple of things that I knew there were going to be vigilante killers. I knew that what the killings were about, but I didn't really know very much about it. And I certainly had no idea about who, who committed the crimes until very close to the end. And it's interesting that all of the people who have picked the end tend to pick it around about the point at which I picked it. So I think that the real thing. Yeah. So JP Premier talks about it as well. He says that he never knows the ending because he's pretty sure if he does, he would telegraph it. Yep. And whereas I think I heard him talking with Christian White and Christian White was saying, you know, I plot it all out and I know who's done it from the very beginning. I don't know. I think it, it's a different relationship with story, but it ends up coming out the same way. So there are plotters and there are pantsers. Yeah. And then there's those that mesh the two, but yeah, yep. I don't know that it's something you can decide. I don't know. Oh, Cause I've played with this. I thought I'm a very big planner in life, but not in writing. I, I, oh, yeah. So I'm lists and everything in life, but when it came to writing, the only way I can do it is just, yeah. yeah. 
Go I remember the story and I discover it as it happens. The first time I remember somebody saying to me, how do you write? And I said, I think the first thing that you have to work out if you decide you want to be a writer is how you write. I said, so you can ask other mm-hmm. people how they write, yep. but you actually have to find out how you write. And that can be anything from, yeah, James Patterson and his 20-page plots that he rewrites several times before yeah. he actually writes the book, through to you and I can sit down with a blank page and just go, oh, wonder what happens next. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I think also part of that is trusting who, like mm. trusting your process. If you try to do someone else's, it's worth trialing other things, but ultimately you have to create your own way, don't that's you? That's right. And then try. That's it. You have to fall in love with whatever your process is and just, yeah, fall into it and trust it. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of writing is trusting Trusting yourself this is your story. This is, and then once it's getting to editing, everything else comes into it, and that's really important. But we, I don't know about you, but doubting yourself, we, I've talked about that a lot in my writing group. How I doubt myself mm. and I'll doubt my story. And, and it's, the more I can just settle and trust, the, I don't know, what comes out is better. I, don't, not, yeah. I, just, I agree. I think it's, yeah, if you fight your process. So I'm part of a group called Writers Flow. and Writer's Flow starts with the course, which basically teaches you how to interrogate yourself, how to really unpack what it is that you're doing so that you can hold on to that through the process. Because it is so hard when you first start, when you first start writing and there's so much that's unknown and this little teeny bit that you do know, that trust is quite hard. But so she advocates that kind of planting notion of having a few plot points that what's going to happen and having, but having a really clear knowledge of why you're writing. Because that's the thing that when you get to that long, dark night of the soul around the middle of the book where you go, this is going nowhere and I have no idea (laughs) what am I doing here? Am I just putting words on the page? At that point, you can go back to that why and say, am I still reflecting that why? Yeah. And always have that. She said, you don't even have to know what the plot points are, but they have to be feelings. So you start here, you end there. Yeah. How did you find the editing process because it's quite different to that really creative it is it was really tricky for me because there was all of that sort of pressure going on in my life yeah and it was this unknown thing I had never worked with a proper full list of issues and they were various and many in the sort of comments that I had to think about a lot of different things and some of them were quite sort of fundamental so I was quite nervous, I think, at the beginning, and I spent a couple of weeks making, making some clear decisions about I'll do this, I'll do that. Well, no, it, wouldn't be, it would have been probably about four days. It felt like a couple of weeks. I'll do that. I'll take that on board. I'm not so sure about that. This is definitely happening. And those were kind of fundamental things, but I didn't know how to, can't drop in and out. I have to work all the way through. So I actually started at the beginning and worked page on page, but I'd had I'd spent that four days moving all of the pieces around in my head so that as I went through, I was almost writing it again as a first draft and making the sort of changes. So I read every line wow. and okay. worked out, oh, that's got to go, and then that's got to go in, and then I've got to write a whole bunch here to make that work, and then So, yeah, it was a really, I had my report beside me and I was referring back to it at the end of every day, but I was just treating it like a first draft and I'm not joking, it was six o'clock on the day that it was finally due and I had negotiated an extension of time because of my sister, but my publisher said, 
Jane said, we've got this really good release date for you and we really don't want to lose it. And I was like, okay, I will make that happen because my sister would haunt me if I missed this opportunity in my life. She would not have been happy about that. Yeah, she actually passed away in the midst of that editing process. So I was going off to the hospital and sitting with her for a couple of hours at a time and then going home and typing and then going back and sitting with her and then going back and typing. And so that feeling when you're writing where as you get further into the story, the world that you've built becomes so big that it's almost more real than the yes. world that you're living in. Absolutely. So it was almost like a saving grace. I had this place that I could go to that where that awful thing wasn't happening and I could actually just lose myself in this story. And I had all of that sort of pressure cooker saying, you've got to do it and pushing me through that story. So it was almost a blessing. It was almost a gift, the ability to escape one life into another. And I think that also shows up in the story. I think the intensity of the emotions are pressure cooked as well because there was so much happening in the outer world that the inner world became heightened by it. So what for you now does a typical writing day look like? I haven't had a typical day. <laughs> Just wanting some stuff. <laughs> I was going to say, I'd love, I was talking to Mercedes about this with her book, White Noise. Yes. She wrote 1,200 words a day. And I was like, you are some kind of God. Like, how <laughs> is it all? Whereas for me, it's I'll start off with 100 words and then 200 words. And then by the end, I can sometimes do five, seven thousand words in a day if I'm once the book really starts to the momentum really starts to build for that story yeah but uh, yeah so at the moment there's just a lot of promotional stuff happening and my head's really in that space I find it very hard to be outside describing the story and then climb back into it but I'm really starting I'm starting to feel that energy inside me that this book really now wants to be told like the second book has decided that it is now almost like a baby ready to be born. Time. <laughs> yeah, so I'm definitely starting to feel that tug towards. And so I've des- decided that three months I'll start to tail off, I'll stop looking for more invitations actively and hopefully let the book settle into finding its audience mm. and I'll move into that space of birthing the next story, which I'm very excited about. So it started, yeah, it's is it a it's definitely... It is, yep. I and think because of the extra plot points that I had to put into the first novel, <clears throat> the story now goes in a different direction. There are things that are left not hanging, like I think the book could stand on its own, but there are definitely tantalising strings that I wanted to tug on and see what happened. And I've got the first three chapters plotted out and I ran up past my agent the other day and she was just like, oh, wow, okay, I've got goosebumps, that's good. Yep. So it's definitely straight out of the gate again, like the first novel. Yeah. And it's very much, yeah, high intensity, high action from the get-go. Excellent. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Pam has a couple of questions that she always asks an author. I think you touched on one of them before, which was what's at the heart of your writing? Mm Mm-hmm. I think you talked about the fact there's that grey area. Definitely. It's I like the I like the twists and turns. I like looking at what makes people what makes people change who they are. What are the kind of catalysts to people looking deeper inside themselves and changing who and how they are in the world. But also I really like stories about strong characters who are under a lot of pressure and yeah, and 
pushed into places where they'll explore the darkness in us or the dark places that we face and help us understand as human beings how we can better manage the world that we live in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the other question that she asks is, do you have any advice for aspiring writers? I think the best advice that I have is fall in love with writing. Be Make that the absolute centre. I come across so many people who, and I have done it myself, <clears throat> there are those moments when you put publication at the front of the process and you are trying to get published. And I think that just doesn't work. I think you've got to fall in love with the process of writing. You've got to fall in love with the words and the stories and the world that you're building and the publication will fall out the other end. That's yes, you'll have to do some things, but if you, yeah, if you put the wrong engine on your process, then the stories that you write will not have resonance. So the most intense, so for example, your story where you were <clears throat> drilling back into a really intense experience in your past and my story, which is sharing the, the sort of seminal righteous anger that women are finally really expressing into the world <laughs> as a catalyst for change. I think these are the kinds of stories that take you deep into the dark places in yourself to say something deep and true and real. And that is the connection that we have with writers. So fall in love with that and the readers will actually find you. Oh, I so enjoyed chatting with you. And Alan, it's been amazing. Thanks so much for sharing, being so generous in all that you've shared. And huge congratulations on Daughters of Eve. It's an amazing book. Get out there, read it. And I cannot wait to read book two. Thank you very much. And I'm the same with you. I hope you're writing at the moment. I am. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks so, so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>